Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 41 to verse 48. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, would that you, even you, had known on this day that things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let me pray for us as we stand. Once I was dead to you, and I could not hear. I was blind to the truth, and was nowhere near. Heavenly Father, without you, we are blind, and we are dead. So we ask for your help this morning. Uh, Give us eyes to see and to understand what your word says, and give us hearts that are willing to be changed by it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab a seat. If I don't know you, my name's uh, Rob. I'm a member of the congregation here. Um, And to let you know something about me, I do not consider myself to be a particularly uh, emotional person. Um, I don't know about you. Um, What gets you emotional? I'm aware this is a fairly dangerous question to ask. Uh, You know, an Anglican church in England uh, on a Sunday morning. Um, I'm not a particularly emotional person, um, however, yesterday I was clearing up my house, uh, which had been broken into, uh, and I must admit uh, that a range of emotions did go through my head, uh, not all of which were pleasant. What makes you really angry? What makes your blood boil? Or what is the thing, on the other hand, that drives you to tears? Uh, maybe... Uh, You've suffered an incident of road rage as you've been traveling over the Christmas period. Maybe it's something uh, more serious than that. Maybe it is uh, the kind of injustice and unfairness uh, that you see in the world around you. I don't know if you've uh, cried over Christmas. Uh, Maybe you watched Toy Story again and just couldn't cope. Maybe the relationships that were sitting around the table over Christmas were the things that brought tears to your eyes. See, what makes us angry and what makes us sad tells us something about ourselves, doesn't it? It tells us something about who we are, and it also tells us something about the things that we really and truly value. And this morning, we've got a remarkable insight into the emotional life of Jesus. And we're going to see him brought to tears, literally, and we're going to see him angry, And I hope that as we examine this passage from Luke chapter 19, we are going to find out more about who Jesus really is and about what he thinks is really important. So if you're not already there, please grab one of those black Bibles and turn up page 879. That should get you to Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. And the first thing that we're going to see is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus weeps 
over Jerusalem, and that's in verses 41 uh, to 44. We're joining Jesus now in his final week uh, in his life on earth, and he is looking out from the Mount of Olives uh, to the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, the heart of the Jewish faith, and we see him crying. Verse 42, uh, Jesus says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. If you were here uh, last week, uh, then Ben was uh, taking us through Jesus' seemingly triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And it seems like there's been such a change in tone, doesn't it? Instead of people laying palm branches uh, before him and uh, praising Jesus' name, Jesus is in tears wishing that people understand who he was and the only thing that could save them. Jerusalem, in just a few days' time, will reject and will kill God's king. And there are consequences for this rejection. Uh, Look down with me at verse 43. Jesus says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is what brings tears to Jesus' eyes. uh, The coming judgment on Jerusalem. Uh, These words uh, foreshadow with chilling accuracy. uh, What is going to happen in about 25 to 30 years time, in AD 70. uh, When Jerusalem is going to be completely destroyed by the Roman Empire. The secular historian uh, Josephus uh, describes that event like this. He says, while the sanctuary, that's at the temple, was burning, neither pity for age or respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and temple to be razed to the ground. Not one stone would stand on top of another. By rejecting Jesus, by rejecting God's king, Jerusalem is inviting God's judgment. And for Jerusalem, that is going to mean in the short term, destruction at the hands of the Roman Empire. For us, if we continue to reject Jesus as king, then that means facing God's judgment for our sin. And there is nothing more frightening or more tragic than that. And this is what Jesus' tears are for, the spiritual blindness that leads Jerusalem to murder its rightful king and so face God's judgment rather than gain his peace. So what about us? What are the things that bring us to tears? We're about to see in the following verses Jesus raging in anger, but before that we see Jesus in deep sadness. He grieves over those who are blind to God's offer of forgiveness and life. I wonder, do you? Are you heartbroken for those who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior and King? Could you imagine shedding a tear for them? Because Jesus did. And if you're sat here this morning as someone who hasn't recognized Jesus as King, you wouldn't call yourself Uh, a a believer in Jesus, a Christian, then know that Jesus' tears are not simply uh, for effect. They are genuine tears of grief 
because he knows that although God is patient, that although God is generous, that his offer of forgiveness is to everyone who will call on the name of Jesus, they must call. There is an end to that offer. With tears in his eyes, Jesus now heads up to Jerusalem itself and heads into the temple. And there we're going to see Jesus cleansing the temple in verses 45 uh, to 48. Jesus cleanses the temple. Uh, as Jesus enters a temple area, um, it's busy. There's people coming from all over Israel and beyond uh, to celebrate Passover and to offer sacrifices. Uh, Jesus comes into uh, the outer area of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. And rather than finding a place where anyone can come and seek and know God, he finds a for-profit religious performance. Uh, people are selling animals uh, to be sacrificed. Now, in and of itself, uh, that wasn't a problem. Uh, but they are doing so in a corrupt and underhand way. Uh, they are charging exorbitant rates, and the temple has become less about prayer and more about profit. I was tempted to make some comment about whether the temple authorities had been in charge of hospital parking. Um, they might have done an even better job uh, than those who have at the minute. But the point is this. The temple is meant to be a place where any person can come and seek God. But now it's become about power, about money, and about comfort. And so Jesus cleanses the temple by driving out those who have forgotten what the temple was for. Uh, the other gospel writers in their account uh, of this incident tell us uh, that Jesus did this by turning over the tables of the moneylenders. Uh, John's gospel recording what is probably the same event. Uh, talks about Jesus uh, using a whip uh, to drive people from the temple. I don't know about you, but this is a very different Jesus uh, to the one that I saw growing up in Sunday school. Perhaps it's one that we're not entirely comfortable with. Jesus is no longer presented as meek and mild, but rather as someone who is angry with the greedy, who condemns those who are hypocrites and who is willing to force them out of God's house. But Jesus' anger is not you or I flying off the handle. It's not me imagining what I'd do if I'd catch up with the people who broke into my house. No, Jesus' anger is righteous. It is fueled and it is measured by Scripture. Take a look at verse 46. Jesus says, It is written, it is in God's word, in the Scriptures, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is here combining two quotations from the Old Testament in his condemnation of the temple's current practices. The first reference is to the book of Isaiah and chapter 56. Jesus quotes from verse 7. Let me read to you, though, from verse 6. It says in Isaiah 56, verse 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Anyone who loves God, anyone who 
uh, obeys his commands and trusts in his promises is to be able to become before God and to receive forgiveness and life. Jew or Gentile, whatever their standing in society is, all are to be able to come God and come to God and meet him at the temple. It is a house of prayer for everyone, for all nations. The religious elite, though, have put up barriers to worship. They've sought to profit from those who should have had free access to God's grace. The second quote is from that passage in Jeremiah uh, chapter 7, which we read earlier. Now, the context for that is uh, God writing to his people at one of their lowest points. They are about to be carried off in exile uh, to Babylon as God judges them for their sin. And God explains to them why he is doing this. He tells them that they can no longer get away with committing the most corrupt and horrific acts of sin and then turning up to God's temple as if nothing had happened. It says in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow the gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. 600 years later, Jesus applies Jeremiah's caustic sermon to the religious authorities here. And he says, you are just like them. You do whatever you like the rest of the week and then you turn up at the temple and you expect me to accept your sacrifices. You're hypocrites. You're concerned with power and money and comfort, not with my ways. Jesus' harshest words are reserved for those who knew God's promises, his kindness, his faithfulness, and yet who choose, instead of sharing this precious gift, to seek power and comfort for themselves. I wonder how you feel uh, reading that. Does it get you angry? Maybe it does. Maybe this is something we think, yeah, that's wrong. I'm so glad it's not like that here. There's nobody charging me on the door to come in. Pretty open about the financial situation here. There's nobody uh, making a great profit. Ken hasn't got a private jet moved outside. The temple, though, had a specific purpose in the life of God's people. But so does the church now. And I wonder if just like Jerusalem and the temple there was in danger of losing sight of what it was really for, maybe there's a danger for us. You say, maybe not. No, we're a church plant. We thought about this sort of stuff a lot. We're careful about it. We know why we're here. We know what we're here for, and we're going to do it. But it's pretty easy for that to slip away, isn't it? Pretty easy for us to think more about our own comfort, our own status, our own ease, than what is best for the gospel. Maybe it's more important to us that uh, we've got the right kids groups to look after our kids, or that the services happen at a time and a place that's convenient for us, or that the music uh, is to our taste than that the gospel is going out into Benwell and beyond. Now, of course, we all know what the right answer to that is. 
But I wonder, are we willing to make ourselves uncomfortable to achieve it? Perhaps more significantly and more deeply, we can recognize in ourselves some of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who were supposed to be looking after the temple. It's very easy, isn't it, to walk out here on a Sunday and to turn up at work or to be at home around our friend's house on a Monday and for those worlds to seem very far apart. That is an incredibly dangerous situation to put ourselves in. And in its most extreme version, that's what it looked like for the temple here, and it's what it looked like in Jeremiah's day. Monday to Friday had nothing to do with their relationship with God. They committed any sin they liked, and then they turned up and they said, we're safe. But they weren't. Jesus makes that very clear. He needs to be angry. He needs to show them the seriousness of their situation. Now, let's be clear, there is no sin uh, that can uh, cause a permanent barrier between us and God. If we will come to him and ask for forgiveness in the name of Jesus. But if we are going to continually walk away from his commands and think that we can disobey them and be safe, then we're mistaken. And we need to repent and come back to God. We've seen then, haven't we, what drives Jesus to tears and also what fuels and stokes his anger. And we're challenged to ask, aren't we, are those the same things which fuel our emotions? But there's something else going on in these verses which I want us to see. And that's thirdly and finally that Jesus is the new temple for a new, greater Jerusalem. And whilst these verses do give us an incredible insight into Jesus' emotional life, they do something else as well. They've got a wider purpose. See, Jesus' cleansing of the temple, as well as casting out those who are corrupting it, is about ushering in something new. And back in the Old Testament, again, this time in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. God speaking, and he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. By suddenly appearing at the temple and by purifying it, like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Jesus is fulfilling now this prophecy. He is acting as if he is the Lord God himself. Something new, a new age is beginning. Uh, John's gospel in its account uh, of this incident records uh, that Jesus says here uh, that the temple will be destroyed and then three days later raised again. And nobody understood at the time what he was talking about, but Jesus was looking ahead just a few days to his own crucifixion, and three days later, his resurrection. Jesus is saying, not only is this temple corrupt, but I'm going to do away with it entirely. I am the new temple. I am going to be the way by which the nations come to approach God and receive forgiveness and new life from him. And it's this claim of authority that leads to the hostile reaction in verses 47 and 48 and then on into chapter 20. Where the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, the religious elite as a whole, are now seeking to destroy Jesus. 
Jesus claims his uh, demand that authority should be given to him, that he should be recognized as God's king and savior, caused the religious elite to want to kill him. In fact, this is the first time in Luke's gospel that we have an explicit threat made on Jesus' life. Jesus is claiming God's authority here. You can see if you look on uh, into Luke chapter 20 uh, and verse 2, uh, where the religious elite say, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And religious leaders are under no illusions as to what is happening here. Jesus is not just condemning them as corrupt and wicked as leading the people astray. He is, in a sense, replacing them. Jesus says that he is going to be the way through which the nations approach God. In a few days, he's going to achieve that by dying on a Roman cross and by rising again. That is the message of the gospel, isn't it? That it's heart. That through Jesus, all people, no matter what nation they're from, no matter what social standing they have, no matter what we have done in the past, can have access to God. Not through uh, traveling to Jerusalem and visiting the temple there, but through calling on the name of Jesus Christ, God's King and Savior, who now lives in us by his Spirit. That is the staggeringly generous and scandalous love of God for people like you and me. However, it comes with just that one condition, that we recognize Jesus as King. I wonder how you respond to that claim of authority over you and over your life. You respond like the chief priests and the teachers of the law here and put Jesus to death. Not physically, but spiritually. You want nothing to do with him. Or simply you're not prepared to accept his claim of authority over each part of your life. Happy to come on a Sunday, but... On a Monday, when it applies to work, I'm not so sure. Or will you, like the crowds here who gather to hear Jesus teach, listen to him, hang on his every word, and accept him as your savior? Jen prayed earlier, didn't she, about how Christmas has showed us the length to which God is willing to go to offer us forgiveness. We see here in Jesus' emotions in what causes him to cry and what causes him to rage in anger that he is deeply committed to us, to our forgiveness, to our salvation, and to our life with him forever. Here, as Jesus approaches a cross, we see his tears for those who cannot see that the only thing that will bring them peace is trusting in him and his anger for anyone who will stand in the way of those seeking God. A lot of people find Jesus' claim to be the only way to God difficult. And perhaps you do. But look at Jesus here. Look at Jesus who weeps, who cries over those who will reject him. Jesus who had real authority that the crowds around him couldn't help but recognize. And Jesus who is here not just to condemn religious hypocrites, but who is willing to die for them as well. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you shed tears for those uh, who won't accept your free offer of grace and peace. Lord, we thank you as well that you care for us so much that uh, you are angered by those who would put any barrier uh, to those seeking you. Lord, as we reflect on what makes you sad and what makes you angry, we confess that it is so often different to the things that make us sad and angry. Lord, we ask that you would change us by your spirit so that your ways would be our ways. Lord, so the things that you love would be the things that we love. And the things that you hate will be the things that we hate. Lord, we thank you that now we don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem, but that you live us, you love us so much that you would take up residence in us by your spirit. Lord, we ask that you would do that again today, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would change us and that you would equip us to hold out that offer of peace and forgiveness to the world around us. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.